Um, if I haven't got to meet you yet, my name is Travis Bowles. Welcome. Um, I am a church planning resident here at the church. And before we begin, I'd like to say a prayer for us before we dive in. Lord, we love you. Lord, this morning, just please help our love for you abound more and more. Lord, throughout this week, I, I pray that we're just able to just a little bit more and more each day just really begin to grasp how awesome you are, how powerful you are, how loving and gracious you are. So this morning, please be with us. Give us wisdom and discernment as we open up your word and try to apply it to our lives, Lord. So we ask all these things in your son's name, amen. Some compare this scene to a great cosmic court case that's tried in front of an audience on Mount Carmel. I've even heard some describe it as a Western showdown or even a cage match or a battle royale on Mount Carmel. The story has always been one of my favorite Old Testament passages. I mean, it has every element that my eight-year-old sons love to hear in a story, right? You have drama. You have an, an evil king, a wild prophet. You have evil prophets. You have fire or pyrotechnics. You have some bathroom humor. You have some violence in verse 40. And since this is a narrative or a story this morning, we'll try to appreciate it as such. So there are some key characters in this story and a little bit of backstory on those characters and a little bit of backstory total will help the entire story really pop in our minds and in our hearts. And this story really drives home toward one simple and crucial point that we all really need to hear. And that is, is that we need to quit limping. The first character that we meet in this scene is King Ahab. Now, Israel used to be a unified country. There was, um, especially under three different kings. We had King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. After King Solomon, the country split into two separate kingdoms. You really had the Northern Kingdom, which had its capital as Samaria, and this is where this event takes place. And the Northern Kingdom, Israel, had a succession of a lot of bad kings. And King Ahab really was no exception. Before this in verse, I mean in chapter 16, it says that King Ahab really did more evil than all the kings before him. He even built an altar, not to Yahweh or to God, but instead to Baal. Now my old seminary professors, they'd be a little bit frustrated with me for pronouncing Baal's name as Baal. His name is really more pronounced something more like Baal but I am from Southeast Texas. We say things like, I'm fixing to, and y'all. My grandfather for the longest used to say a hurricane is coming, meaning a hurricane, I'll translate it for you. And as most scholars do like to joke, I doubt that Baal will uh, be offended if we mispronounce his name or butcher it because Baal's not even a real entity. He's not even a real God. But Baal supposedly was a fertility God. He was a God over lightning and rain and was supposed to help produce more crops. And King Ahab led Israel astray. He led these Hebrews, God's chosen people, to worship Baal and led them astray into worshiping a false God. Then the cage door opens up and Elijah enters the octagon. Only there's no hype music. Elijah doesn't even have an entourage to hype him up. He's all alone. The prophet Elijah to me is actually one of the most interesting and colorful characters in the Old Testament. Elijah's ministry even prefigures Christ and anticipates Christ's ministry. 
Elijah was a true character. The Bible describes him as a hairy man who wore um, clothing made out of animal hair, and he had a, a leather belt that would go around his waist. Sometimes he had a steely resolve and was bold and decisive like we see him in this event. Over the course of his life, though, sometimes he was fearful and timid because he experienced the true power of God, and sometimes he would experience the depths of depression. But in this moment in his life, God is calling him to stand firm and call Israel back to following God. The first interaction we really see really sets the scene for us and sets the tone for us in verses 17 through 19. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So the showdown is really set there on Mount Carmel. King Ahab calls Elijah the troubler of Israel in verse 17. King Ahab sees Elijah, ironically, as the cause of the nation's troubles. He also, I think, is blinded in his sin and idolatry, and he can't really fully see the real facts on the ground that he's the one who's actually led Israel astray to follow other gods who are not really gods at all. And Elijah calls him out under the, the power and the direction of the Lord. So Elijah has him gather everybody, including all the prophets of Baal, 450 in total. Two bulls would be presented to them and the prophets of Baal would get the first choice of the two bulls, meaning that they get to choose the better of the two bulls. They'll have the advantage to, uh, for this offering. They then would cut up the bull and lay it on the wood, but they could put no fire to the wood. They then would then call out to Baal and Elijah was going to call out to Yahweh and God. And according to verse 24, whichever God answers by fire, well, he's God. The point, the challenge here is to reveal who the true God is. Now remember, these are Israelites. These are Hebrews. These are God's chosen people. Verse 21 says that Elijah called out to all the people, all of these Israelites who had begun worshiping Baal. And he said... How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Elijah has a true way with words. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Some translations will render this, how long will you waver between two opinions? This tells us that Israel had not totally rejected God, but had combined the worship of God with the worship of Baal. They had slipped into syncretism or the combining of religions and worship. They were worshiping Baal and Yahweh, limping between the two. So the issue that Elijah is bringing up, the issue that Elijah is heralding, is that Israel had to choose who was God, either Yahweh or Baal. And what he's really driving at is simple but crucial to our Christian lives. God is the only true God. So serve and worship God wholeheartedly. Quit limping between the two. 
Now, it's easy for us to see this as a them problem. This is a problem that Israel had. They were the ones who were following after a God with a little g. But John Calvin said, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. And I think John Calvin is right here. Man's heart is like this little internal factory that pumps out these little idols and these little gods that we ironically and sinfully begin to serve. Whether it's things like Netflix or TV shows that are nine seasons long, watching sports, children's sports, our cell phones, right? We reach for them constantly. A clean house, a promotion, our wealth. Often, we turn these things into idols and little gods that we devote our attention to, our thoughts, our lives, and even our worship to. And before we know it, we end up limping. Hear Elijah's correction and rebuke to Israel. Search out your own heart. Root out the things that have become idols and little gods that you serve and unknowingly worship. Some of us need to be like surgeons. We need to do a little biopsy. We need to cut into our heart. And we need to see if there's any tumors or little idols that have been growing unknowingly or silently and begin to cut them out. I realize that diagnosing your idols is a difficult task because we're usually blind to them. We're blind to what they really are. So the challenge is, is really doing the hard work of figuring out what the unknown is. Imagine, for example, you have a window with four panes or four boxes. In one box, there's what we personally see and know, the idols that we do know, right? Then in that second box, we have the idols and the, even our sins that our spouse sees, our husbands and our wives see, and they know, but we don't know. They're a blind spot for us. And then in that third box, there's everything that our family and our friends see and know, but maybe we don't know. We have to do the hard work and get into that fourth box, that unknown box. It's generally where we hide everything, even the idols from our own selves. We have to do some real work to figure out what idols lie in that box and begin to get rid of them so we can be more fully devoted to the Lord. So if you wanna know, you wanna to try to find out what idols lie in that box for you, maybe look at your social media algorithm. Maybe look at your search bar history. Check your Amazon wish list. Ask your spouse, ask your friends and your family. And here's the hard one, ask your kids. They're generally spot on. And pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to illuminate those idols that are in that fourth box for you and begin to convict you of them. But back there on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, they cry out to Baal in verse 26. They say, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. Then the drama really gets dialed up to 10 in verse 27. It states, and at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Now my kids, they would call this a burn. And it's a pretty good one at that. You have this image of Elijah and he's sitting around maybe in the shade and he's lounging and he's just watching the prophets of Baal really act the fool. And around noon, he's tired of it, he's done. And every nook and cranny of this burn is really brilliant. He's like a stand-up comedian combined with a philosopher and a theologian. 
I personally love comedians who bury or lay up their jokes. They really kind of make you work at the punchline, similar to what Elijah does here for us. I mean, look at the content of his mocking. In verse 27, Elijah first says, cry aloud for he is a God. Notice it says God with a little G and it's a little G for good reason. The true God, you don't have to yell at to communicate with. A true God is not like your kids who are on the other side of the house and you have to yell at them to go wash your hands and come to dinner. No, God by nature is omniscient and he knows everything. There's no reason to cry aloud. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6, but when you pray, go into your room, you shut the door, pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Part of God's nature is that he knows all and there's no reason to scream. A God you have to inform is actually no God at all and a reality is made up just like Baal. I think sometimes we forget this in our own prayers in our own lives, right? Sometimes we, when we pray, we just think maybe if I pray a little louder or if I use the right words or the right combination of words, maybe then God will turn his attention to me and he'll do the things that I'm asking him to do. When in actuality, God is omniscient. He knows everything, so there's no reason to cry aloud. He's always paying attention. He always knows what's going on. We don't pray to inform God because he already knows. Then in verse 27, Elijah then says, maybe he's musing or relieving himself. So Elijah, before this, he must've been hanging out with my eight-year-old boys because he lifted this joke straight from them, I think. Because this burn he delivers is, is actually, when you look at it, it's quite philosophically and theologically, it's quite deep. The idea that Baal would relieve himself once again applies human characteristics to someone who's supposed to be a god. This burn highlights that he's not really a god at all. God the Father, in contrast, he is incorporeal. It's a, it's a theological word we use to describe the fact that God the Father has no body. No body, no physical body. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit. Our God is not like us. He is transcendent. Also in verse 27, Elijah also says, Maybe Bell hasn't responded to all 450 of you because maybe he's on a journey. I recently went to Destin, Florida on vacation and I received an email about our church plant, but it really required a physical response. I really needed to meet with someone in person, but I couldn't, right? I'm a human, I'm limited by time and by space, so I couldn't act on that email. What Elijah is inferring is that if Baal is off somewhere else, then he also couldn't be on Mount Carmel to bring down fire. Yahweh doesn't have this problem. Yahweh, God, is not limited. He's not limited in any way. He's not limited by space or by time or by distance. He is outside of time. He can be in countless places and involved in every single situation simultaneously because he's omnipresent. A real God doesn't have to travel because he's omnipresent. God doesn't have to catch an Uber. He doesn't have to catch an airplane. He didn't have to go and park his car outside of the church and then walk in on the sidewalk. 
God can be equally present here in this room as he can equally be present in Ukraine being worshiped by Christians in Ukraine. Psalm 139 verses seven through eight say, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Elijah continues his mocking. And he says, perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. In other words, old grandpa Baal has fallen asleep on the couch again and he needs to be awakened. And a God who sleeps, once again, is a contradiction. A God who sleeps is a person who needs rest and a person who needs rest is by the very definition, not a God. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Yes, in Genesis chapter two, the Lord rested on the Sabbath, but it was not because he needed rest or he was weak or tired. It was because his work in creation had been completed. And by resting on the seventh day, he graciously gave us humans Rest. He gave us the example of rest because we are human and we need rest. As far as I'm concerned, after Elijah's mocking, he could have just dropped the mic right there on the stage and walked off. He could have just walked straight off of Mount Carmel because he's totally dismantled and deconstructed the religion surrounding Baal. A real God would not be limited in these ways. Yahweh is not limited in these ways. God is all powerful. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's all knowing. He's omnipresent or he's everywhere. Yahweh is truly God, so worship him. Serve him. Make much of him. Love him. Don't limp between two opinions. But Elijah's, his theological mocking and critique of Baal seems to have gone just right over their heads. The prophets of Baal continue their plea in verses 28 through 29. It says, and they cried aloud and they cut themselves as or after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation but there was no voice and no one answered and no one paid attention. This description is quite graphic. It's a little gut-wrenching, right? They mutilated themselves. They cut themselves in an attempt to get Baal to act or to respond. In other words, they cut themselves as was their religious tradition in order to try to manipulate and strong arm Baal into acting. By the way, this is not a thing of the past. There are still modern religions that advocate for self-harm in their religious traditions. But once again, a real God who's completely sovereign cannot be manipulated or strong-armed. Theologians use the word immutable to describe the fact that God is unchanging and unchangeable. Malachi 3.6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. I think one of the things that we have to really guard ourselves against is that sometimes we end up doing things in an attempt to manipulate God into acting. If I just get my spiritual disciplines right this week, if I just really nail my quiet time, maybe if I just don't sin the rest of the week, maybe then God will act in this way. For example, just practically, let's just consider prayer. We do not pray in order to force 
God to do something. We do not pray to somehow cosmically strong arm God. No, because God is immutable. He's unchangeable. And his definite plan will stand for all time. Prayer then is not about changing God's will, but instead prayer is a means in a way which God carries out his will. And hopefully that prayer creates in us the right attitude with respect to God's will. So that way, hopefully we'll pray like Jesus taught us to in Matthew 6.10, where he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Also, unlike Baal, we serve a God who does not require self-mutilation. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We worship and serve a God who is graceful and loving. He doesn't require religious acts or self-mutilation to gain his favor. Christianity is completely different because we can't save ourselves through religious acts. No, God is the one who's sovereignly acted to save us through Jesus's work on the cross. Elijah then picks up 12 stones. He rebuilds the temple. He has them pour what ends up being 12 jars full of water all over the offering and the bull. And everyone who's seeing this event can visibly see that this the entire thing is saturated with water. And then in contrast to the 450 prophets, one man, Elijah, prays a simple prayer in faith to God. And then the divine pyrotechnics begin in verses 38 through 39. It states, then the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And then all the people who saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Picture this scene with me. The entire altar, the surrounding area, it's all saturated with water to show that there's no possibility of this offering catching on fire to do to some just natural cause. The author of 1 Kings wants us to know that without a doubt, this fire is delivered from the hand of Yahweh. Look in verse 38, the fire is possessive. It is the fire of the Lord. It's his fire and it fell. It did not originate from Elijah or from a, a spark on earth. It fell from heaven. It originated from Yahweh. Just imagine the power and the might and the heat it takes to consume stones, flesh, wood, and that much water. It says, it says the power of the fire licked up the water. You have to even marvel at the fact that even the stones were consumed. You have to heat up stone to about 1100 degrees Fahrenheit to turn a stone into magma or to molten rock. You have to heat up sand or the dust up to roughly 3,090 degrees Fahrenheit just to melt sand and turn it into glass. And this offering, these stones and this dust were totally consumed. Consumed, as in no longer present. I read a, an academic peer-reviewed journal article where an engineer tried to calculate the potential energy and heat required to consume stone, wood uh, that's drenched in water and an offering. Um, you gotta love engineers, right? God made them a little bit extra. 
So he can, uh, just, just reading a journal article, the only couple of things I did really glean from it and really understand was that he pretty much argued that there's no natural way occurring during that time for there to be that much heat and energy to consume stone and water and this, this offering all at the same time. And he even said that it would take about as much power as a modern power plant to totally consume all of this. So the result ended up showing the unmatched power and might and sovereignty of God. The fire proved that God is real, unlike Baal, who's made up, and that God is present, able, and active. Just imagine what it would have been like just to have been there, right? I'm sure you've sat around a fire and you felt the heat just radiating off the fire on a cold day. Hopefully the witnesses there were far enough away from the Lord's fire, right, safely away. But just imagine the impact it would have had on them, right? It even says that they fell on their faces after they witnessed this event and cried out that God is the true God. So what is this entire story, this narrative? What does it all point to? I believe it points to one simple imperative. And it really doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. It doesn't matter if you're in high school and you just graduated and you're going to college, if you're a single parent, if you're a business professional, if you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're an engineer who loves to study thermodynamics. Really, the point is all the same for all of us. The application here is all the same. It's simple. Yeah, crucial. There is one true God. So worship God with all your heart, all your might, and put aside idols. Quit limping between two opinions. So if you're joining us here for the first time and you're considering Jesus, please follow the Lord. Please follow Jesus. Because what is most exciting is that this all-powerful, this transcendent God who can equally turn nothing into something through creation and who can equally turn something into nothing through decreation, this transcendent and all-powerful God created us to have a relationship with him, to know him through his son, Jesus. And we get to rightly worship God through his son, Jesus. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus died a real physical death. He was buried and he was resurrected on the third day. Jesus paid the penalty that our sins deserved. He saved us from this punishment and God's wrath. If we just repent of our sins, we place our faith and hope in Jesus, then we can have a real relationship with the Lord. We can have a right relationship with the Lord. And if we come to know Jesus, then we can have not only a right relationship with him, but we can rightly worship God through his son. If you're a believer, 1 Kings chapter 18 is not about Elijah. He's actually not the profound and colorful character of the story. He's not the hero. He's actually not even the central character, the driving force in the story. No, 1 Kings chapter 18 is all about God. Israel had gone astray and God used Elijah as an instrument to call his people back to himself. This event calls us to center our worship around God. This narrative, this event is God-centered because God is God-centered. God is all about his glory and rightly so. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord and that is my name. 
My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is for his glory. If God was about anything else and whatever else he was about, then that thing would then be God. So God is rightly God-centered. God is worthy of all of our praise and honor. And we should do all things for his glory. If you're considering Jesus, this means that you don't have to limp between all the different opinions that the world pushes on you. You can serve and worship the true God through his son, Jesus. If you're a Christian, this means that you can live your life for his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This is simple and yet crucial, yet we have to constantly be reminded of this. So this week, as we close here, begin to work through your hearts and your minds. What are the idols in your life that you need to root out, to destroy? What idols have enticed you and lured you away from full devotion to the Lord? No longer limp between two opinions. And as we've seen from this passage, God is worthy of all of our praise and all of our honor and all of our worship because he's not limited in any way. And this transcendent God created us to have a relationship with him and to bring him glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are more powerful, more loving, more gracious than we could ever imagine. Lord, I pray this week that we're just able to, just to understand a little bit more of what that truly means. Lord, help us to root out the, the idols that have slowly grown in our life. Holy Spirit, please just illuminate them for us. Help to convict us to root them out, to destroy them, to put them aside so that we can more fully worship you and love you. Lord, help just to increase our affections for you. Lord, we ask all these things through your son's name. Amen.